Matthew 27 and Exodus 26. Just have two markers there so we can move fast. All right, as there were, you know, seven utterances from the cross, seven sayings by the Lord prior to his death, there are also seven miracles affiliated, associated with his crucifixion and his death. Would you know it would be the number seven? Now, three of them we have already discussed, and they were the salvation of the penitent thief. Wouldn't you say salvation is the greatest miracle of all? Yeah, one minute cursing Jesus, and the next minute he was saved. So that was the first miracle. Then there were the three eerie hours of darkness at noonday. That was definitely a miracle. And third, the Lord's own dismissal of his spirit. No one took his life from him. He gave it himself. That is a miracle. And with his self-willed sacrifice of his own life, four more mighty miracles took place. And they took place in rapid succession, very likely even at the very same time as his cry, It is finished. And the bowing of his head, the purposeful bowing of his head, and the yielding of his spirit. At that moment, when he did those things, the cry, the bowing, and the yielding, four more miracles took place. And they were, number one, well, actually number four, because I told you there's seven. Number four, the rent temple veil. Very, very significant miracle, which we're going to discuss this morning. Then there was the earthquake. Thank you. And then there was light. Let there be light. <laughs> Terry just turned the lights on. Now I can see. All right. So the rent ta- uh, temple veil, the earthquake, and when the earthquake took place, rocks were literally rent in half. And what else happened? Graves were opened for bodies to come out of them on Resurrection Sunday. That was, and they, it, it was a selective opening of graves because not all graves were opened, just certain graves were opened. And then the seventh miracle that was affiliated with the Lord's death was the salvation of the Roman centurion. And actually, I think the other soldiers, at least some of them, were also saved at that same time. But we're going to just, you know, center on him. Again, that's the best miracle of all. The miracle of the penitent thief and the miracle of the Roman centurion. And that's the first and the seventh. Isn't it interesting that those were the greatest and they are the bookends. And then we had all these other miracles in between. But the miracle of the saints coming out of their graves is not a miracle affiliated with the Lord's death necessarily because I'm going to put it with his resurrection since they came out of their graves after his resurrection three days later on Resurrection Sunday. Now, I have entitled this lesson, which is going to be at least a two-part lesson once again, Responses to Christ's Death. And the reason for this is because that's exactly what we find in the gospel narrative. That's exactly what we come to next after the Lord's death. First, we have the response of the testimony that really comes from God by way of the miraculous events that I just mentioned, the rent veil, the earthquake, the rent rocks, and the open graves. What is that other than the fathers testifying about the person and the work, the finished work of his son? And then, and we're going to not get to, <laughs> excuse me, to this until next week, but there is the response of faith from the Roman centurion at the crucifixion site and also his fellow soldiers. And third, there is the response of fear 
and conviction from the multitude. I will discuss that this morning. So we're kind of jumping around. And fourth, there's a response of watchful faithfulness from some women who were standing afar off, women who had ministered to the Lord during his earthly ministry, Gentile women. And we will, we will read about it, but we won't discuss that till next week. So the four divisions for our outline are the Father testifies, and that's given to us in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then we have the centurion believes, again that's given to us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We have the multitude fears, only Luke tells us about that, and when we get to it, I'll read that verse to you, it's in Luke, but for now we're just going to read Matthew's account. And then there's the women watch, and that's found in all three of the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So the father testifies, the centurion believes, the multitude fears, and the women watch. Those are the responses to the Lord's death. Now, did you notice I didn't mention John? John doesn't record any of these miracles. Not the rent veil, the uh, earthquake, the opened graves. He doesn't mention any of that. Why do you think that is? Well, probably, (coughs) I don't know what's happening to me here. (coughs) No, but probably because he wrote last and the other three men had already written about those things. Uh, Matthew and Mark and Luke had already written those things. So what he does is skip over them and he goes straight to tell us about two other things that they don't tell us about, which was the preservation of the uh, Lord's bones or the protection of the Lord's bones from being broken. John tells us about that. He's the only one who does. And he also is the only one who tells us about the piercing of the Lord's side with the sword. Now, for our discussion this morning, we're going to only read from Matthew's description of these uh, miracles because he gives us the most complete, other than that one part I told you we'd go over to Luke. But let's read Matthew 27, verses 51 to 56, um, and then we'll get into our lesson. All right, Matthew 27, starting at verse 51. And if you'll notice, verse 50, right before it, was when the Lord cried out again in a loud voice, We aren't told here what he said, but you all know. What did he say? It is finished. And then he yielded up his ghost. Now, the next thing we read is, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves when? After his resurrection. Always remember, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus rose first, and then after he rose, these came out of their graves. Now, their graves were opened on crucifixion day, Passover, but they didn't come out of their graves until after he rose on Sunday. And they went into the holy city, (laughs) silly, and appeared unto many. I imagine that was something else. Can you imagine being in your home, maybe gathered around the supper table, and all of a sudden your once dead Aunt Susie walks in? I just can't can't imagine. I wish the Bible told us more about this, don't you? But that must have been something. Mm. Let me go. Ask me later, okay? Because of time, we're already behind, all right? I know there's a lot of questions, and you're going to have to come back next week for the answers, okay? Because I've got some ideas about who some of those saints might have been that came out of those graves, but I'm not going to, I'm, you're going to have to come back. I've got to give you some inspiration to come back, right? <laughs> Tune in next week. <laughs> All right, but uh, they appeared unto many, it says. I mean, many people saw resurrected people. 
Now, verse 54, now when the centurion and they that were with him, notice that? It wasn't just him, but they that were with him would be who? Those 12 other Roman soldiers. They that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake. When they saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. They had heard him being mocked for being the Son of God. Now they're convinced he was. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children, who would be Salome, the mother of James and John, the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. Uh, All right, that's where we stop because the next verse tells us about Joseph of Arimathea. All right, the renting of the temple veil is also given to us in Mark and Luke. And what is interesting to find when you compare them is that Luke records the rending of the temple veil in the verse right before Jesus' death, whereas Matthew and Mark tell us about the rending of the temple veil in the verse right after Jesus. Jesus's death. Now, some critics will look at that and say, look, there's a discrepancy. There's an error in the Bible. But obviously what the Holy Spirit was trying to do was indicate to us that the two events occurred exactly at the same time. The rending of the temple veil occurred at Jesus's death. Actually, my thinking on this, and of course, I can't be dogmatic, but I think that as Jesus purposely bowed his head, you know, from its upward erect position, and he humbly, submissively, you know, bowed it. As he made that motion and rested his, his chin on his chest, with that nod from the king of kings and from the head of the church and from the one mediator between God and man, the temple veil, as he made that motion, was sliced from top to bottom. I like to think that. And it was like an invisible heavenly knife just sliced right through that barrier that so long had separated sinful man from holy God. And it was a mighty miracle. Wait till you find out how thick that veil was and how heavy. Mm. And how big, tall. (laughs) The timing of the rending of the temple veil is just really as important as the rending of it. Because when did it tear? And when I say tear, I don't even like to use that word really. Because tear you think of uneven and you think of threads hanging out, don't you? I think it was sliced, even. Uh, And that's what the word rend implies. When did that take place? Exactly at 3 p.m. on Passover day, which was the very hour, three on Passover, when the Jewish people from all over the world were assembled together in the temple in Jerusalem for the beginning of the evening sacrifice of their Passover lambs. There would literally be hundreds of priests, the descendants of Levi, receiving the lambs for the slaughter in the court of the priests, where there stood the huge brazen altar. That brazen altar was 48 square feet 
and 15 feet tall. It was massive. It had to be to slaughter all those lambs. And uh, also in the court of the priest would be the large basin of water, which was called the laver. Again, massive pieces of furniture. That thing was so big that 12 priests could wash their hands at the same time. It was, um, it, it was carried on the back of 12 colossal brass lions. Huge. Held gallons and gallons of water. And uh, there would likely also be some chief priests even in the holy place, doing the ceremonial requirements involving the burning of incense on the altar of incense. Now, you know, I've gone into the inner sanctuary when I say the holy place. They're in the holy place, and in the holy place, right before the veil, right in front of the veil, was an altar of incense. And that veil, of course, separated the holy place from the... What was back behind the veil? The holy of holies, the innermost holy place. And uh, there are many duties, of course, on that very busiest day of the year had, think of this, I wonder if you thought about this, but their duties, they had a lot to do on Passover, but what they had to do had been delayed by those three mysterious hours of darkness. They hadn't been able to do their work for the past three hours. And put all this together. The darkness began at what time? 12 noon. And when did it end? 3 p.m. When did Jesus die? When was the temple veil? 3 p.m. I mean, all, you know, it's all happening at the same time. So suddenly it gets bright again at 3 p.m. And the priests are scrambling. They've only got a few hours left to slaughter all those lambs before the sun goes down. Because it's three, the sun probably goes down at about six. So they're, you know, they're probably stressed after such, uh, uh, you know, and it was, and they're probably spooked too. Because if anybody knew what darkness symbolized, it would be the priests. And what does darkness symbolize in the Old Testament and in the book of Revelation? Judgment. So um, they're probably a little spooked about the midday darkness. But the minute it turned bright again, which it just had, They were focused on the Passover lambs by the thousands that they needed to slaughter and offer up as sacrifices. And then suddenly, suddenly something happened that was even more striking and more terrible, really, than the strange darkness of that day. And this, what happened next, was even more memorable to them than that darkness. The thickly woven heavy veil which hung on huge hooks of gold we're going to talk more about them was rent in two right down the middle from top to bottom and the sacred chamber of the holy of holies that 30 foot cubic shaped chamber which the high priest alone and with great fear and trepidation and extreme caution, was only permitted once a year to enter, and not without blood, for himself and for the people, and through a cloud of smoke created by the altar of incense in front of the um, veil, because he couldn't go in except, you know, be very smoky, and he didn't really look at the Ark of the Covenant. But guess what? He couldn't look at the Ark of the Covenant because it wasn't there. I'll talk about that too. Um, 
Well, let's talk about it right now. Well, let me finish my sentence. Okay, suddenly that veil was cut. You know, and do you know how thick the veil was? Four inches thick. They say it was the width of a man's palm. Now, I got to thinking about that because I I, when I was studying, I was looking at what I was wearing. It was a house coat at the time. But I thought, well, that's only, and I looked at it, I said, man, that's only about a quarter of an inch thick. And then I, you know, tried tearing it. Uh, there's no way. I, can't, I mean, I, I need scissors to cut my sweater. Um, but can you imagine a fabric four inches thick? That is, that is thick. And when, uh, later I'm going to tell you how big it was, too. Uh, but I want to talk about right now what was in the Holy of Holies. You know, in the days of the tabernacle, when God first gave the, the pattern to build the tabernacle, which was a tent, to Moses, he gave everything specifically, what, he, what they were supposed to do, how they, what they were supposed to build, what furniture went where, etc., etc. And, of course, um, they were to put in the Holy of Holies the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of Testimony. And what was inside of that Ark? the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses um, on stone tablets. And, of course, he was angry at what they had done when he came down from Mount Sinai, and he broke them. So in the Ark of the Covenant was the broken law. What was the but? Well, of course, there was Aaron's rod that budded and other things. But I just want to focus right now on one other thing, some manna, wasn't it? Some manna. Um, But what was above the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the mercy seat, the mercy seat. See, it's all a picture of the fact that all of us fall short of obeying the law. We all break the law, don't we? The broken law was in the ark. What do we need? Mercy. How do we get mercy? By the sprinkled blood of the perfect Passover lamb, which is what they were doing, testifying to for all those years. But the ark of the covenant was in the tabernacle for 40 years as they wandered around them when they finally went into the promised land It was there in the tabernacle, Um, and then they built Solomon's temple. David wanted to build it, didn't he? He he looked around, he said, well, Lord, everybody now, now that we're in the promised land, everybody's living in houses, permanent buildings, and you're still living in a tent. I want to build you a temple, a permanent building. God said, you can't do it, David, because you've got bloody hands, you know, he murdered. And so he allowed his son Solomon to build the temple, and it was just Magnificent, wonderful, glorious temple for God. And God dwelt with his people in Solomon's temple. The Ark of the Covenant was in Solomon's temple. When did the Ark disappear? And nobody has found it to this day. Now, there's all kinds of speculation about where it might be, etc., etc. But when did they lose the Ark of the Covenant? Or when did they hide it? At the time of the Babylonian captivity. They knew Nebuchadnezzar was coming. And uh, so they hid the temple furniture, or some of it, and especially the Ark of the Covenant. So now we come, and we're um, in Herod's temple. This is Herod's temple at the time of Christ. It started to be built right before Christ was born, but and it didn't get finished until 66 A.D. But what was in the Holy of Holies? That You know, the high priest still went in there on the Day of Atonement to do his thing and sprinkle the, Paso- the, the blood of the Lamb once a year, didn't he? But what was in there? You know, when the temple veil rent, what were they then looking at in that Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant was gone. Well, do you know that was my big challenge this week to find out what was in there? I knew that they would not have made, they had such reverence for that Ark of the Covenant, there was no way they would have made a duplicate of it. So what, what did the high priest sprinkle blood on? 
And I read and I read and I couldn't find anybody that answered that question for me. And finally, thank you, Alfred Edersheim. <laughs> He's deceased now, but he was a Jewish Christian. And you can really rely on his works because he did his homework and he documented everything. And he, he was Jewish and he understood. He, in one sentence, in a, in a book I have on the temple, one sentence, he gave me the answer. And it's just so perfect. What they had in there was a big, cold, hard stone big stone instead of the ark of the covenant and he went in there and he sprinkled the blood on that hard stone and i'll tell you why that's appropriate later on in our lesson also as i was reading his book about the temple he um, explained because i had wondered about this too we always have these little questions and they never get answered right and i was thinking what did they ever do if they needed repair work or something a new paint job in the holy of holies did you ever think about that? How did they do that? Because no one was allowed in there except the high priest. I found out what they used to do. They had uh, in the ceiling above the Holy of Holies, they had a little hole. And they would allow the high priest once a year to look down into that little hole. I don't know if he had a flashlight. I don't know how he saw down what was going on in the Holy of Holies. But he would look down. And if he saw that there was some repair work needed in there, they would open the ceiling just big enough, to let down this man-sized cage and have workmen in the cage, but they completely covered the cage, you know, so the workmen could not see out of the cage except for a little slit where they could look at the piece of work that they needed to do and slide their hands out to paint it or fix it up or whatever, and then they'd pull them back. They weren't allowed to put their feet in the Holy of Holies, you know, so they took them out by air and look. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that, I'm telling you all this because that shows you the kind of reverence that they had for the Holy of Holies. So you can imagine their horror when suddenly the temple veil rents and there it is, exposed to all. Now, the priests' witnesses of that would have been aghast. They would have been very affected uh, and very fearful because their eyes could look right into the Holy of Holies, the place where no human eye could even look upon now, uh, before now, without fear of dying. Now, I don't know that they would have died in this temple, because God didn't dwell there, did he? It was just a hard, cold stone in there. Um, so obviously they didn't die when they looked in, did they? But back in the Old Testament days, when God did dwell, there was a warning in Leviticus 16.2, that if you looked you know, in, in, at, at God, you would die. But the priests didn't know that, did they? They still feared that they would die. And they, uh, those who went, who saw this probably went running out of the inner chamber of the holy place called the inner sanctuary. You know, they weren't in the holy of holies. They were in the holy place. They're the ones who witnessed it. And they run out of that holy place into the court of the priests and you know that as soon as they told all the priests doing their thing out in the court of the priests, those priests would have run in to verify the miracle. And from there, you know, ooh, boy, pretty soon, word would spread from the court of the priests to the court of the Israelites, the men, over to the court of the women, then out to the court of the Gentiles, and then out into the rest of Jerusalem. And before you know, you know, the word would have gotten like wildfire, spread very, very quickly about what had happened. God made sure that there were many eyewitnesses to verify this miracle. It was important because the torn veil testified to the fact 
that his son's death had opened the way for all men, even the Gentiles. You know, they were never allowed past the court of the Gentiles. Even the Gentiles could enter into his holy presence. All who placed their faith in his son could now advance boldly. Boldly. You know, even even the high priest never did that, did he? They said that they tied a rope around his ankle. And he went in there very fearful that he might die. And why'd they have the rope around his ankle? In case he did die. <laughs> and they could pull him out. They could have lowered the cage and gotten him. <laughs> no, but they had a rope around his foot. Um, but we can enter boldly. Not even just into the court of the priests. Think about this. We are now a royal priesthood, right? So we... Even as women, you know, we would only have been allowed. Well, we're Gentiles, so we would have been out in the court of the Gentiles. Anybody Jewish? All right, but if you had been a Jewish woman, you would have been allowed to go into the court of the women. And we're not men, so we couldn't have gone advanced into the court of the men. But now we can, as women and Gentiles, even go into the court of the priests because we are a royal priesthood. Do you know what was in the royal, the court of the priests? Or in, and then we can, I'm sorry. We can, we can go into the court of the priest, and then we can even go into the inner sanctuary. That's what I meant to say. The holy place. What was in the holy place? Three pieces of furniture. You had, I already told you about the altar of incense, which was right before the veil. The altar of incense pictures our prayers, right? We're all priests. We can offer up all our prayers boldly, boldly before the throne of grace. There was also the table of showbread, which demonstrates that we can have we can break bread and have fellowship with God, right? He is the bread of life, and we have fellowship with him. What was the other piece of furniture in there? It was a great, big, huge, giant, golden candelabra, seven branches on it. The middle one went straight, and it was called the staff or the... Um, um, the, the branch there was another word. I can't think of it right now, but that represented Christ. He's the vine. We're the branches. We were the other six branches. How did they, how did they continue to have the, the fire lit on the candelabra? Oil, oil. We now have the oil pictures, the, the Holy Spirit, and it also gave light and we're to give light. We're the light of the world. I mean, there's so much meaning. We can go into the holy place, but we can even go further, can't we? We can go because the veil is, is missing, gone. You know, we can go right on into the Holy of Holies. The broken law has been covered. The mercy seat, the perfect blood has been sprinkled once for all on that mercy seat. It's just such a beautiful picture when you, if you ever do a study of the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is the perfect picture. The temple man changed a few things, okay? So you usually want to go back to the tabernacle, descriptions on things. But the rending of the veil was the destruction. It, it, it symbolized the end of the whole tabernacle and temple dispensation, the end of the entire sacrificial system of Israel, which, as we have been talking about, was only anticipatorily covering sin. It never cleansed sin, did it? Never wiped away sin. The rending of the veil carried with it also the pulling down of that middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. It threw open the chamber of direct access to God to all mankind, Jew or Gentile. It was the end of the age when God was dwelling with man. 
Now God was dwelling in man. The priests of Levi and the the Jewish people, they really had a much greater appreciation and a greater understanding of the significance of the sacredness of the veil's function than I believe most of us have today, especially, you know, most Americans and and, and even most people in the church. We don't understand the reverence that they had and the understanding of the holiness of what was behind that veil. They had been guilty of many sins over their years, hadn't they, the Jewish people, turning to other gods and just about every sin you can imagine they committed. But the violation of the secrecy of the veil had never been one of those sins. There was a tremendous reverence for what it kept hidden. So, when it suddenly tore in two distinct, neat, and equal halves, bearing open the sacred holy of holies, you know that a deep and dreadful fear must have come upon everybody that heard about it in Israel, all the Jewish people, and in particular, the priests, because they had the greatest understanding of all that um, over, over everyone. You know, most of the people had never seen the veil. They weren't allowed into the holy chamber, were they? The priests had seen it. They understood more than anybody this miracle because they knew it to be the work of God. No human hands. And if you ever read a commentary that says, well, this was the work of some Jews that slipped in there and did it or some Gentile. I mean, that is just absolutely so ridiculous. And let me tell you why. No human hands could have torn this veil into two equal parts. For one thing, I told you, it was four inches thick. And uh, just try tearing a piece of regular fabric in two with your bare hands, without scissors. Very, very difficult. Also, to have torn the veil from top to bottom would have taken one very, very large ladder or else a whole scaffolding system. Because do you know how tall the veil was? How high? 60 feet. 60, that's 10 six-foot men standing on top of one another. I don't know how tall the ceiling is, but 60 feet is the height of some telephone poles. And do you think if some, I don't know why a Jewish person would ever want to tear the veil anyway, because they'd be fearful of losing their lives. But let's say they managed to get in there. They'd have to set up this big ladder or scaffolding system and and try to do it. Do you think nobody would see them sneaking in and doing that? I mean, this was Passover. (laughs) The place was full of priests and and people. And I mean, and Gentiles could not have been allowed past the court of the Gentiles if they tried to do it. They would have been caught by the temple guard and, and, uh, and killed. A Jewish person trying to do that would have been stoned to death. Right there. Well, not probably in the holy place, but they would have taken them out and stoned them to death if they had tried to do that. The temple veil was 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide. That's probably about as wide as the sanctuary. It was massive. In fact, the Jewish Talmud tells us that do you know how many people it took to hang it on those great big golden hooks that they hung it on? 300 priests just to hang it. It weighed thousands of pounds. Now do you get the miracle? Do you get it? And it wasn't ripped from the top up. It was sliced in half from the top bottom to the bottom. 
The priests knew that this was a miracle. It was the mighty hand of God that tore it from top to bottom, just as likewise was true with Christ's death. The Lord Jesus gave his own life, didn't he? It was not torn or rent from him by men, those at the bottom of his cross. You know, his own people, the Jews, rejected him. The religious leaders illegally condemned him. The Romans nailed him to a cross. But Jesus dismissed his own spirit, didn't he? He laid down his own life. No man took it from him. He rent his own spirit from his body. We could say, just like the veil, it was a top-to-bottom job, because it was. Now, some people have tried to say that the earthquake is what caused the veil to rend. But that is just as illogical as saying that men rent it. Have any of you ever been somewhere where there was an earthquake? Anybody? When you were experiencing that, were you worried about your curtains? I mean, just think that through as women, right? (laughs) This curtain, this veil was hanging on hooks. I mean, you know, it might shake, but it's not going to tear. I mean, that's the last thing you would think about is something hanging, a curtain. You know, oh, run and get my shower curtain. (laughs) Oh, it's just, it's absolutely ridiculous. Besides, if you look at the order of things, actually says that the veil was rent before the earthquake. So that's just ridiculous too. Well, it wouldn't have taken long for the priests and the masses of people to discover the timing of the supernatural events of that day with relation to the death of the very well-known Jesus of Nazareth. The three hours of darkness that preceded his death and when it got light, you know, it's finished and he's dead. Uh, The rent veil, exactly at the same time he died. They'll put that together, won't they? They'll figure all that out. The earthquake happening, the rent rocks, the opening of the graves, all happening in direct correlation with his crucifixion and death. That was obviously used by God. This is the testimony of God as to the person of his son. This was used by God to turn every truly honest seeking person, thinking person, toward Christ which is exactly what it did with the Roman centurion and the others with him, and I'm sure many others as well. But he used this to turn people to his son and to the fact that his claim to being the son of God was indeed true. Have you ever wondered why it says in Acts 6-7 that there was a great company of priests? A great company of priests who became obedient to the faith. They turned in faith to Jesus Christ. Ever wonder why? Well, they saw what happened when Jesus died. And all they had to do was hear the gospel, and they surrendered. They got the miracle of the rent veil and the earthquakes and everything else that happened. Also, like the Roman centurion and the others with him, the soldiers with him, the people at the crucifixion site the ones that were still there when Jesus dismissed his spirit. And remember, for three hours, they couldn't really go anywhere because it was too dark to walk around. So there's a lot of people still there. 
They were very alarmed by what they saw and heard and experienced there at Golgotha. Luke 23:48 says this. This is the only thing that Luke tells us that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not. Luke says, And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. They returned back to their homes. They had not only, think of this, all that they had seen, they had not only witnessed the Lord's amazing control and his composure during the whole crucifixion process, even as he, you know they're nailing the spikes into his hands and feet, but they had heard his continually repeated prayer of forgiveness for those who were doing this to him. And they had heard his words of forgiveness for that penitent thief. And they had experienced that eerie, strange darkness, which most, most Jewish people knew was a sign of God's displeasure and judgment. And they had been shocked at his roaring voice, you know, when it pierced the air with surprising vigor two times. And they also saw how he died, you know, with such royalty and such composure. And then immediately, as his head bowed, they felt the rumbling of the earth under their feet. Now, can you imagine being in their place going through all this? I would imagine that it was pretty awesome. And uh, they possibly saw the large rocks all around there, because if you go to Israel, there's rocks everywhere. I'm sure they saw rocks split right in half, and maybe even some graves nearby in, in a, in a uh, graveyard there at Golgotha saw graves opened. Tombstones rolled away. And there is a very strong possibility, had you thought about this, that the Lord's great shout, it is finished. I don't want to shout in the microphone because my husband gets upset when he hears my tapes and he says, you're always shouting. (laughs) I said, well, I have to wake him up out there. (laughs) But he did shout that, like a roaring lion. It is finished. Did you ever think that that might have been what precipitated the shaking of the earth? You know, when the Lord speaks, things happen. We'll talk about that a little later. But the crucifixion crowd, you know, they experienced all these things. Now, they wouldn't yet know about the veil renting in two. But it wouldn't take long for word to get to them about that as well. Yet even without that knowledge about the veil renting, with everything that they had seen firsthand and heard and felt under their feet, they were convicted enough to return to their homes smiting their breasts. It was no ordinary crucifixion that they had watched that day. And it certainly was no ordinary man who had died there that day. There was an ominous and there was a mysterious character to the day that really frightened them. And you can imagine, you'd be frightened too. Their action of smiting their breasts. Now, we don't really do that in America. Do any of you smite your breasts when you're scared? <laughs> we ought to, yeah. Or um, convicted. But there's two things that it, it represented back in those days. And I think people still around the world do that. Yesterday, um, one lady, Mercedes, told me, you know, she could think. Because I said, can you ever think of when somebody smites their breasts? And she said, yeah, um, when the, the athletes do something, you know, bad. It's like saying, my bad. (laughs) I said, okay. 
So that these guys are going, my bad, all these crucifixion people, because uh, anyway, I was going to tell you, there's two things that represented in those days, and they maybe still do this in the Middle East, but one is fear, and the other is, is repentance. Can you think of somebody in the New Testament who smote his breast in repentance? The Right, the penitent publican. Remember, he's in the temple with the righteous, self-righteous Pharisee, and he's smiting his breast because he's repentant of his sins, and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Probably many of these people who are now returning to their homes had earlier joined in the mockery and in the scorning of Jesus, and now they were very fearful over what they had done, and they were repentant of their participation in the killing of an obviously righteous man, one who was so special, in fact, that God himself had responded to his death with judgment signs, you know, the darkness and then the earthquake. I wonder, I wonder how many of these crucifixion spectators became the recipients of the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I wonder how many of them were there in Jerusalem a few weeks later to hear Peter's first sermon and were so pricked in their hearts that they said, what shall we do? I wonder how many of these people were included in the 3,000 souls who entered into God's kingdom that day. Because of his mercy, I think many of them. It's just amazing when you think of all the people who were saved there. I mean, there was the penitent at the crucifixion. There was a penitent thief. There was a Roman centurion. There were the other Roman soldiers. There were many of the priests that came to the faith. I think many in that crowd that were mocking him came to faith. Is that not mercy? If that isn't mercy, I don't know what is. But let's return to the significance of the rending of the temple veil because it is indeed very, very important. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the rending of the veil of the temple is not a miracle to be lightly passed over. And that's why I didn't just want to make it part of a lesson today. I want to focus on it for most of our lesson. Did you know, and this is where your little, did you give them a slip of paper? Okay, this is where um, you can look at your paper that Terry passed out, that there are six veils mentioned in the Bible. And we gave you this because it's not in the book. This is extra, okay? And they are, to begin with, the veil of the tabernacle. And here's where I would like you to flip over to the place I asked you to mark, Exodus 26. I'm not going to read the whole passage about the description of the tabernacle veil, but I do want to read part of it because we're going to talk about it later. But there, first of all, was the veil in the tabernacle. All right, so if you're in Exodus, I'm just going to read verses 31 to 34 to give you a description of that veil. And this is the one God gave the description how to build it, how to make it, how to weave it, okay? He's talking to Moses, God is, and he says, And thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet. Three colors, blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine twined linen. What color is linen? White, okay? So you're going to have a white linen, and you're going to weave in it blue, purple, and scarlet. Of cunning work. Notice that, cunning work. That's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? Cunning work. I circled it in my Bible because I thought, oh, that's interesting, cunning work. With what else on it? Cherubims. You've done needlework? 
Well, they, you know, they put in, as they're weaving it, they, they put cherubims on this uh, veil. With cherubims shall it be made. And thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of chinnam wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. And thou shalt hang up the veil under the tatches that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony. What's that? The ark of the covenant. And the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. That's the purpose for the veil. To hide from view the most holy place where the ark of the covenant was and where God's Shekinah glory dwelt with man. Verse 34. And thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. So the first veil in scripture is the God-given veil of the tabernacle. Then also there is the veil of the temple. Now although the rent veil was in Herod's temple, we really need to go back to the tabernacle as we just did for its God-given description and purpose. There were many differences, obviously, between the two buildings of the tabernacle, which was just a tent, and the temples. You know, first Solomon's temple, and then Zerubbabel's, and then Herod's. There's a lot of differences between the two buildings. But the temple veil was the reproduction of the tabernacle veil as far as its material, what it was to be made of, and the colors of it, and the ornamentation of it, you know, with the cherubims in it. That was a, that was an exact replica of the tabernacle veil, except for one thing. I think they decided that bigger is better because they made it so much bigger. I told you, four inches thick, it wasn't that thick in the tabernacle. Can you imagine hauling around the veil in Herod's temple as they were in the wilderness? <laughs> I wonder how many camels they would have needed just to carry the, the, the tabernacle veil. Because it was 60 feet. You know how, said that it, in Herod's temple it was 60 feet tall. The tabernacle, God-given veil, was only seven and a half feet tall. That's quite a difference. That's a difference of 52 and a half feet. So they did think, you know, Herod thought bigger was better. So the one in the temple was a lot bigger, but their purpose was the same, same purpose, which was to say basically this far and no further. Remember the cherubim? Well, I'm jumping the gun. I'll talk about them in a minute. Let me get back to third. Third veil in the scripture was the veil of Moses. Exodus 34. The glory of God had so stamped itself on Moses' face as he met with God on Mount Sinai that Moses had to put a veil over his face, didn't he? To conceal the blinding glory from the eyes of the Israelites. And then there's the veil that is on the heart of Israel. She does not, to this day, corporate Israel as a nation does not understand that the righteousness of the law has been fulfilled in Christ. She does not yet accept him as her Messiah and Savior and King. There's a veil that has been uh, put upon her as a nation. You know, just think of a big blanket being put over her. Just like the scales on the eyes of the Jewish people. Now, of course, there are those who do, because always the individual can come to the Lord. There are many Jewish people who do know the Lord. One of them led me to the Lord. Um, But as a nation, she still has that veil over her. When will that veil be removed and lifted? What causes a veil, by the way?
over a person or over a nation. Sin, right? Sin. And rejecting God and his son. Or rejecting his son and God. Because if you reject one, you reject the other. That's what put, keeps a veil over a nation. But that veil will be removed finally at his second coming. When Israel looks upon him whom she has pierced and mourns for him as the only son, then the veil will be removed. The next veil is the veil that's on the heart of the nations. A veil has been spread over all nations. Do you know of a single nation that is Christian, completely Christian, corporately? Of course, Christians in nations. Sadly, even our nation has a veil over it. And we had such a good beginning, didn't we? I mean, we're so blessed. We started out with a Judeo-Christian faith. But look how far we have slipped down the slippery pole, slope. And so there's a veil over our nation today, sadly. Of course, there's many holes in the nation. I mean, in the veil, you know, for all of us. You know, we, we get to see through the veil because we've been born again. We see God. We know who he is. But the sixth veil is the veil of Christ's flesh. The Lord's human flesh was a veil that hid the inner glory of his divine nature. Only once did he allow that glory to burst through and allow three of his inner, cycle, inner circle uh, disciples to see it. And of course, we all know that was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, do you remember, let's go back to that description in Exodus 26, how God told Moses that the tabernacle veil was to be made, the description of it. I want to consider just some of the ways in which that veil pictured the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have time to get into all of them, but we want to hit the highlights. All right, in the fact that it was to be made from fine white twined linen, we see the righteousness and the purity of his human nature, his faultless material, his flesh. Even though he took upon himself the likeness of man, he was without sin. So his flesh was faultless, just like the fine twined white linen. In the veils, now I love this one, in the veil suspension from the gold, by the golden hooks. Remember we read that it, it hung on those great big golden hooks? What does gold in the Bible symbolize? Deity. Deity, okay? By the fact that the veil was suspended on those golden hooks, we have symbolized for us uh, the beautiful picture of the dependence of the Lord's humanity, his flesh nature, upon his deity. The dependence of his human nature on his divine nature. And this is really why we could, we could actually say that his humanity hung on his deity. This was why the Lord was impeccable. Remember the doctrine of the impeccability of Jesus Christ when he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan for 40 days, right? Remember that? If you were here. Uh, he was, because he was man, he could be tempted, couldn't he? He was 100% man, and he could be tempted, and he was tempted by Satan. But his deity overrode his humanity, and because he's God, God cannot sin. He could be tempted in all ways like as we are, but he could not sin. So that's the impeccability of the God-man. And that shows 
us his humanity hanging on his deity. Perfect picture of the, uh, the veil. Or the veil is a picture of him, I should say. And then in the colors woven into the white linen of the veil, blue, purple, and scarlet, we have a picture of his divine nature, blue. Where was he from? Heaven, blue. The blue was on the top of the veil, all right? And then um, the blue came together with his human nature. He became man. What does man have? Blood, scarlet, the bottom of the veil was scarlet, red. He came from heaven blue to give his blood for us, to be a propitiation for our sins. But when the two colors met together as they were intertwined in the fine linen, blue was at the top and the red was at the bottom, and when they came together, they blended and made what color? What does blue and red create? Purple. So in the middle of the veil was purple. Purple is a perfect picture for the two blending together, the God-man. Also, purple is the color for royalty. And he, of course, was the king, is the king, the king of kings. Also, remember, God told Moses that the veil was to be of cunning work. We learn when we read in Exodus 31 that an Israelite by the name of Bezaliel was anointed by the Spirit of God for the very special work of creating the tabernacle furniture and the veils, the curtains and the veils and everything. He was like the contractor, but he was the, he was the man who was anointed by God's Spirit. Uh, it tells us that he was filled by the Spirit with wisdom and understanding in, and knowledge in the manner of all workmanship. The very same spirit who anointed Bezaliel to make the wonderful fabric for the veil, according to the divine pattern, was the spirit who worked in a young virgin named Mary from whose body came the incarnate God. She was found a child by the Holy Ghost. Remember it says the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. He was born of a woman and yet called the Son of God, blue. Called the Son of Man, red. He was Emmanuel, God with us, purple. The humanity of God, God becoming man, was indeed a cunning work. <laughs> Putting it mildly, right? A cunning work. And then what else was on there? Cherubims. What are cherubims? Angels. Now, it was, again, like I said, the cherubim are there because they're telling everybody this far and no further. Hmm, what does that remind you of? Remember? Yes, the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden, they didn't have access into the Holy of Holies, the Garden of Paradise anymore, did they? <laughs> and what was put there to guard them so they couldn't go back in? Cherubims and an amazing sword. You know, it was a flaming sword that spun around. And there's no way anybody's going to get past that. So, oh, it's all so perfect. Everything is perfect. Now, I could go on and on about the description, but those just give you some of the highlights. Everything in the tabernacle pictured Christ. 
Hebrews 10, 19, and 20 confirms to us, and I'm not just making up the fact that the veil pictured Christ, because the scripture tells us in Hebrews, it says, having therefore brethren. Are you a brethren? Or sisterin? <laughs> having therefore brethren, boldness. Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Scripture tells us the veil pictured his flesh. What does our boldness to enter into God's presence with our prayers and our fellowship and our, and our light so shining before the world, what does, what do, how, how do we have that kind of boldness? Right? The veil is rent. It, it rests. Our boldness, unlike the high priest, our boldness rests on the finished work of Christ. Even the high priest didn't have that kind of boldness. You know, and he couldn't enter without, as I said, the blood of animals. Uh, and in much trepidation. Our boldness rests on the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed once. Once for all. The way opened into God's presence, the author of Hebrew tells us, is new. New. It's not part of the old. The old is gone. Remember we talked about that with the whole Levitical system and the tabernacle and the temple, everything. All that's gone. The new way is new, brand new. The old is vanished away. The way opened into God's presence is also living. He said a new and living way. Why is it living? Well, because Christ is living. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. Christ himself is the new and living way. All those other lambs are, were dead, weren't they? He was a lamb who rose back. He's living. It's a new and living way into God's presence. Instead of just one representative person coming into God's presence through the veil once a year, all people can come into God's presence through Christ. But no man comes to the Father but by him. He is the new and the only living way. Well, in each of the six veils of Scripture, we find that the veil is what separated the glory of God from the view of sinful man. Even in the veil of Christ's flesh, God's glory was hidden from the view of man. In Hebrew, the word veil means uh, to separate, or it speaks of a barrier. Why must man be shut out from God's presence? Obviously, because of our sin. Sin's what separates us. The rent veil declared that the great sacrifice on the cross of the spotless Lamb of God who gave his own rent body as the ransom for many had been accepted by God his Father. That's what the rent veil said. I accept it. The way to me is open. When the veil was rent, it was a loud, ripping voice that said to the priests, your work is finished. I've got good news for you guys. You can go home and sit down. Oh, they longed to sit down, didn't they? You can take off your blood-splattered robes and replace them for his perfect white robe of righteousness. You can rest in his finished work. Because you are officially retired. Your services are no longer needed. 
But don't worry, we'll give you plenty of perks and retirement fun. You know, it's been put away for you. Matthew's use of the word behold. Go back to Matthew 27, look at verse 51. Behold, when he says behold, that is to catch the reader's attention. He says, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. In other words, Matthew is saying through the Holy Spirit, pay attention and look to see the wonder and the meaning of this great thing. The temple veil is torn in two. The function and the symbolism of the veil cease to exist at the moment of Christ's death, is the moment of his completed work. Just as his atonement work was finished, we could rightly say that the veil resigned its office. <laughs> it could go into retirement. Now, do you know what they did, actually? What do you think those crazy Pharisees and Sadducees did with the veil? What do, what do you think they did? Because, you know, the temple wasn't destroyed until 70 AD. Oh, yeah. They went back and sewed it up. Which is exactly what a lot of churches are doing today when they still have a priesthood system. It's like they sewed back up the veil. Well, you know, this had also been demonstrated earlier by the high priest Caiaphas. Remember? Remember that wicked Caiaphas? Ugh. He broke the law when he rent his high priestly garment. He was not, the high priest, according to Leviticus 21.10, was not to rent his high priestly garment. But he piously, hypocritically, pretentiously did so when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Remember, oh, he tore it. Just a big show, theatrical display. But in rending his priestly high, gar uh, high priestly garment, he was unwittingly demonstrating that his office ceased to exist. There was no more need for an earthly high priest because the true high priest had presented the once for all sacrifice for sins, uh, for the atonement of sins. So we have the high priest renting his and the veil rent. You know, it's all giving us a picture. At the time of Christ, we could easily say, because it's true that Israel had not only a defiled priesthood, but she had a desecrated temple. Do you realize that God, as I told you earlier, did not dwell with his people in Herod's temple? He did not dwell there. Herod the Great had been a very, very evil man. He was so evil that he tried to kill the Christ child. Remember the Bethlehem slaughter of the innocents? And he killed most of his family members, his sons, his wives. I mean, he was just a horrible person. He was the one who was responsible for destroying Zerubbabel's temple. You know, they went, they had, okay, let me just give you a real quick history here. Uh, they start out with the tabernacle. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years in the tabernacle. They went into the promised land. They had the tabernacle. David said, I need to build you a house, you know, God. So Solomon built Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was there for many years. It was glorious, wonderful. But the Babylonians came along. They destroyed it, you know. And, um, and, and then when they came back after 70 years in captivity over in Babylon, they wanted to build a temple. And that's where you have Nehemiah building the wall. And then Zerubbabel comes and they finally rebuild the temple. But it wasn't the glorious temple that Solomon's was, you know, and that people were complaining about it. But God didn't care. He was happy with Zerubbabel's temple because he doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And the people that wanted to build him back the te a temple had right hearts. So he dwelled again in Zerubbabel's temple. His glory filled the Holy of Holies, even though the Ark of the Covenant was gone. He dwelt there. But years later, Herod the Great destroys Zerubbabel's temple to build this massive, colossal 
temple. Why? For the perpetuation of his own name. That's the reason he built it. God never gave instructions to build Herod's temple. There was no Ark of the Covenant there. There was no Shekinah glory of God's presence there. It was, as Jesus said, it was supposed to have been his father's house, but they had made it a den of thieves. And I got to thinking how apt it is that what was in the Holy of Holies of Herod's temple a big, hard, cold stone. Wow, doesn't that picture Israel's spiritual condition and her religious rulers? Did they have compassion? Did they have hearts of flesh? No, they were like hard, cold stones. The Son of God himself only was allowed to minister in the outer courts of the temple. He only probably got as far as the court of the men because he was a Jewish man. But most of the time we see him ministering, he's either in the court of the Gentiles or he's in the court of the women. That's where he saw the widow, you know, drop her two mites. But he, he's God's son and he had no access into the inner sanctuary, you know, much less behind the veil into the Holy of Holies. See, God had dwelt and fellowshiped with his people through the offerings and sacrifices of the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament, but he was moving out from the ritual to the reality. He was moving from the shadow to the substance. He was moving from the types to the truth. And he didn't need Herod's temple because he now had provided his own temple. God resided within the man, Jesus Christ, didn't he? His body was the temple of God. Remember he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And his temple was not hard and cold, it was compassionate and loving. Each of the temples was temporary, you know, very short-lived when you think about it. The tabernacle wore out the tent, and it was eventually replaced by Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Zerubbabel's temple was destroyed by Herod the Great. Herod's temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. The temple of Christ's body was destroyed by the Jews and the Romans combined. And so, where's the temple today? Where is it? No wonder the Jews don't own it today in Israel, in, over there in Jerusalem. You know why? Because there is a temple today. It's within, it's, it's us, it's our bodies. We are the temple of God. It says, for ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them, not just with them anymore. I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. However, as with all the other tabernacles and temples, God only occupies our bodies for a limited time because they are subject to, to physical death. But this is going to lead us right into the full consummation of our fellowship with God. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and our a house not made with hands eternal. In the heavens, where is the final temple? Where has it been? The eternal, where is the eternal temple that's always been? It's in the heavens. 
You see, God resides in heaven. And he gave the pattern for the tabernacle. Men did the temple thing. You know, he was happy with the tabernacle because he knew he was a pilgrim with pilgrims. He was just, you know, passing through. Our eternity was going to be spent in his temple in heaven. I think that it's set up just like the tabernacle. And he resides in the holy of holies. And we will ever be, there's no veil. Uh, well, Christ sits there and he's the veil. <laughs> but he doesn't prevent us from getting in. He's the one who makes us have access to God's presence. And I believe that we will be housed around the tabernacle of God's temple. You know, in my father's house are many mansions. If you've ever seen a picture of how the tabernacle was with all the 12 tribes all around it, I believe that we will all dwell in the father's house and mansions all around his temple, and his temple will be the light, and he will be the light, and we'll just live there forever and ever. There will never be any end to that temple. You know, just like the temples here on earth were all short-lived, do you ever think about the high priest? The high priests were all short-lived, weren't they? You know, a high priest was to have his job for a lifetime. But the problem was they kept dying, you know, so they'd have to be another high priest and another high priest. But we have a high priest who ever liveth. Do you know that that is why he is not after the Aaronic priesthood? Because they died. He is after the order of Melchizedek. Do you know Melchizedek never had a beginning? We're never told who his parents were. And we never have an end about him. We never know what happened to him, how he died. That's what it's telling us, that he is, Christ is after the order of Melchizedek because he is the one high priest who keeps his, his job for a lifetime, for an eternity lifetime. The, the earthquake. I'll just tell you real quickly about the earthquake. Um, this miracle is only given to us by Matthew. The seismic strength of it, we are told, you know, we don't know what it was on the, on the uh, graph, but it's indicated by the fact that the rocks were rent. They weren't just cracked, they were rent. Same word as the veil, which tells us that big rocks were split right into pieces. The force of this earthquake is also what God used, obviously, to open many of the graves of locally buried saints and selective saints. The seismic disturbance had enough impact to it that it caused hardened Roman, tough Roman soldiers to fear greatly. So it was pretty big. How far it extended, we do not know, just like we don't know how far the darkness extended. Um, but, you know, if God had wanted to at the time of his death, he could have shaked the whole world, couldn't he? Now, there are reports of an earthquake at the time of Christ's death all the way to Rome and beyond. There are reports of one, but we can't dogmatically say. You know, he might have just rocked Jerusalem, or I think the whole world shook. Um, uh, let's see what I want to skip here. Some have suggested that the, the uh, last loudly spoken words of the Creator, when he said, it is finished, are what actually caused the earth to quake. And when you read Matthew's account and you see the cause of a, and effect of the order of things, that's actually what it sounds like. Because first of all, there's his loud cry, tetelestai, and then it says immediately after that, and behold, the veil is rent, and the earth did quake, and the rocks were rent. So it is very plausible that when the Lord Jesus, you know, the power of the word of his mouth, when he said tetelestai, that the earth, quaked. I like this. The earthquake was God's 
amen to his son's tetelestai. Jesus said, it is finished. And God said, amen. (laughs) Mark, who doesn't tell us anything about the earthquake, Mark tells us, that the Roman centurion was affected by seeing Jesus cry out so loud. So that does put the two together, really. It's interesting to see how selective the earthquake was, too. This is a miracle. Now, you could say earthquakes, you know, that's not really a miracle. Earthquakes happen all the time. This was a miracle. The timing tells it it was a miracle, but also the selectivity of it tells us it was a miracle. It was strong enough to split big rocks in two. Right? But it didn't topple any of the three crosses there on Golgotha. Hmm, that's pretty selective. It opened graves, but it only selectively opened those containing the bodies of saints. And certain saints, too. Come back next week. It was as though the earthquake was a living thing whose divine intelligence was able to discriminate the various dead. (laughs) Who's who? Do you think God can do that? Oh yeah, he knows. He knows which bodies he's going to raise at the rapture. It sensed the meaning of Christ's words, it is finished, and seemed to presume the Savior's victory for his saints by his coming resurrection. Now, I know I've taken you over time, and sorry for that, but this I promise I'll close with this. We have to dip one more time back into the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there. Um, But we learn more about the significance of this earthquake when we go back to the Old Testament. We want to know, what was this earthquake saying? It was saying something. This earthquake at Calvary was responding to an earthquake that took place centuries before at Sinai. This earthquake was Calvary's answer to Sinai. Do you recall that when God appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai, the whole mountain quaked greatly, we're told in Exodus 19.18? What was the significance of that great quaking? Well, God was giving the law. He was giving the law, and it's the law that exposed the wickedness of sin. Men had sinned before Moses gave the law. But they didn't realize the, the seriousness of their sin until they had the law. You know, the law is our schoolmaster to show us how far we fall short of the glory of God. I mean, the law, when we look at the law, we say, oh, I can't even, I can't even keep the Ten Commandments, much less the rest of the law. Can't really even keep the first one. So to underscore the seriousness of his absolute holy standards of righteousness, God accompanied the giving of the law with thunders and a thick cloud and the exceeding loud voice of the trumpet of God and smoke and the quaking of the entire mountain. And just as the Roman centurion and the other soldiers and the people at the crucifixion site were all, you know, greatly fearing of Calvary's earthquake and everything else that they experienced, so did the people who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai tremble greatly, we are told. You see, Sinai was given in order to get people to long for a Savior, to see how far short we fall. 
and to long to be saved. The law was given to show men how sinful they are and how impossible it is for any of us to perfectly keep God's holy standards of righteousness. The law wants men to desire to be saved. So the earthquake at Mount Calvary was the answer to the earthquake at Mount Sinai. And it said, what did it say? What did the Calvary earthquake say? It is finished. The law has been fulfilled. Its holy standards of righteousness have been attained. And the one who attained it qualified, therefore, to pay the full wages of sins for the whole world. He qualified and he did it. He atoned for the sins of the whole world. It is finished. And God said, Amen. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, I trust that each and every one of us can and do respond to the Calvary miracles in the manner for which you intended them, which is to respond just as the Roman centurion and the others with him and say, truly, truly, this was and this is the Son of God. (laughs) This was and this is the only holy, righteous man that this world has ever seen and ever will see. And we are so thankful that he did it all, that he finished the work of atonement for our sins. We ask, hallowed be his name. And may his will soon, Father, be done on earth as it is carried out today in heaven. How we long for that day when we will dwell with you eternally. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.